Welcome to the next episode of Thinkers Dialogue. Uh, in fact, it's my pleasure to be your host for today. And we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Professor Richard Dasher from Stanford. Uh, quite interestingly, Richard has been a friend for the last uh, five years, if I'm not wrong. The first time we uh, met was possibly in Banff. Uh, and uh, that, that's where we ended up becoming great friends and, uh, and ended up teaching together at Stanford. In fact, right now, at this moment itself, uh, we are teaching a course on rebalancing economic systems, which we feel is one of the most exceptional exercises uh, that we have done. In fact, at least for me, it's been one of the most fulfilling activities that I've done with Richard over the last few years. We have done a few pieces together as well. But uh, those are my personal uh, experiences with Richard, like an amazing person, an amazing, graceful personality. And I think uh, just a kind-hearted soul, like uh, that's that's what he is. But other than that, like on a professional front, he heads uh, the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford. Uh, he was the executive director of the Center for Integrated Systems at Stanford for at least 17 years from 1998 uh, until 2015. Uh, he's done his PhD in linguistics and that too from Stanford. And then, uh, of course, he was uh, uh, working with the uh, American government or the US government uh, in the Department of Languages and so on and so forth. So uh, you can read about him. If you really search about him on the internet, you will see tons and tons of references about him. So by then, uh, so I'll just request all of you to really look at that. But without further ado, we'll just quickly uh, get into the conversation. Uh, Richard, thanks a lot for joining us today and being with us. Amit, thank you very much for your kind introduction. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. This kind of takes us back to some of the fundamentals of Western civilization, the idea of the platonic dialogue, where you both speak with each other and both learn in the process. Oh, yes. And in fact, uh, I'm very much looking forward to it as well. So just, just, just diving into this uh, conversation, a very interesting topic on innovation and language and economic development. But my first point is, like, Richard, could you share something about a journey in terms of your study in linguistics? What, what got you there? Uh, because uh, this seems to be a very oddball area for work for a lot of people. And this is here that you're talking about linguistics and what got you into it? That may be uh, especially so when you consider that what I studied in my PhD and subsequently was the history of meanings. So how word meanings change over time and what kind of patterns you see in uh, speaker strategies for using language and the outcome of these strategies of language use really are new ways of saying things. So I did my PhD in linguistics and was able to work with Professor Elizabeth Traugott, who is very famous in this particular area. And after uh, finishing the PhD, together we published a book called Regularity in Semantic Change. And it outlines kind of the framework for how language use can lead to new ways of, well, new meanings for words. And uh, it also points out some almost universal tendencies in uh, the paths that these meanings take over time. So the kind of thing we're talking about is how do words like um, a hired hand, for instance, originate? Because when you think about it, you're hiring the person, you're not hiring the hand. But uh, this is one of those things that everyone knows what we're talking about. It even shows up in the dictionary entry for hand now. So you have lots of things like this over and over again. Uh, in this kind of realm, people are always, and this is a strange use of the word, negotiating meanings with each other. So I have my perception of the world and this is going to have to do with the things around me. It's going to have to do with the time in which I'm living. It's, and I'm also talking about a world, right? And the world that I'm talking about will be oriented to my world, typically with me as the main point of reference. But the basic thing about language is when I communicate with you, I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm only successful if you get my point. 
And that's not just the basic meaning, that's all the kind of subtle ways in which I'm making the world look in a particular uh, pattern. So if I say, close the window, everybody who speaks English has some kind of a view of a room in which there's a window. It might be some chateau in the south of France, or it might be a log cabin in Kentucky, but there's a window that can be closed. And uh, so you have this kind of sense where we're starting off with a lot of knowledge from outside, but by negotiating with each other, one of the things that we negotiate is how I feel about you and how I'm trying to uh, make you feel about the situation. So instead of saying, close the window, which is pretty direct, you know, maybe I'm going to say something like, don't you think it's hot in here? Where it becomes obvious what I want you to do. So this kind of pattern, uh, not just with, you know, closing windows, is something in which people are always looking for new ways of saying things but they are constrained by what they think the listener will understand and how they think the listener will get it. So, so that's the kind of thing I look at. So that's interesting. But then some, some points that you've actually said here, uh, that you said new meanings for words that actually emerge over a period of time. How does that happen? Like, uh, uh, what are the set of words that might have actually changed meaning over a period of time? Or they, they've got uh, rebranded as something else? So, of course, there are various linguistic theories about how meaning changes over time. Uh, and like all science, everybody wants their own theory to be the way. But uh, I think that there are several things going on. The old traditional view was that parents' communications to their children was not completely perfect. And the children came up with a different set of meanings for what was being said to them than the parents intended. Uh, so imperfect transmission across generations. What we look at is really looking at the kind of implications of what is said and how those implications gradually become part of the core word meaning to the point where maybe you even, the, the original meaning of the word is lost. So green technologies, right? What's a green technology? That's one of those things that should have been just absolutely, um, obviously doesn't make sense, but uh, it does because of the whole concern about climate change, because of the whole movement toward um, trying to do things in a way that's friendly to the environment. We had a very convenient way of saying green technologies. So we have the greening of America. Uh, and people may realize that we're talking about a political policy issue there. So Richard, Richard this is very fascinating in terms of like how, how this evolution has happened or happens. But is, is there a certain way in which change works in language? Is there a process to it? Is there, is there a method to it? Uh, and how, how it happens over centuries or decades or years or even probably maybe a month? Well, there are some kind of very common patterns. One of the common patterns is to take physical sort of relationships and put them into different domains of speaking. So for example, we talk about jumping to conclusions where there's no physical jump involved, but that has been in a sense hijacked to talk about a mental process. Uh, most of the words that have to do with um, mental perception and also things that are kind of abstract um, have, a lot of them do have these kind of bases of physical relationships over time in completely unrelated languages. So in English, the word understand, what are you standing under? right? And, you know, when you understand something. Uh, and actually that, I have to say, that goes back to English, uh, say, 1400 years ago, when the, the meaning of under was really closer to the meaning of in the middle of. So that has shifted over time. 
And you see various things. I have to say that sometimes outside influences will really cause a change in language. Um, when the Normans invaded England, right? Suddenly we got tons of new vocabulary and people invented ways in which the vocabulary would be different from each other. So people started eating pork instead of eating swine flesh. And the word swine became a farmer word and the word pork became kind of in town and, and um, more high class, if you would. So that kind of thing can influence language. I should say that um, just about my own background, for my PhD, I studied the history of politeness language in Japanese. I wanted to study a language that had nothing to do with English historically and was likely not to be contaminated by things that were happening in English. And I really wanted to see if the same kinds of things were happening in Japanese. And politeness language is a very large part of the grammar and lexicon of the Japanese language. Uh, how you address the other person is a very delicate procedure. It's one of the hardest parts of learning the language is the subtle positioning that you're making. Um, there are something like 19 different pronouns for the word I. 19 different versions of I. So uh, I looked at politeness language over time because there was almost a wholesale turnover in vocabulary about three times in the written history of the language. Changes faster because the words are socially marked. The, because they're socially marked, uh, they either tend to lose value. Uh, one will not be as polite as it used to be in the previous generation. Or in some cases, they even become um, sort of uh, looking down at someone, a word that was originally relatively polite. Uh, so this kind of thing was fascinating. And it gave me, I think, what you really get out of this is insights into how people perceive the world, especially in order to communicate the world they're perceiving. And you see a lot of things about society. You see a very complex system that people have remarkable control over. It's uh, just as complex in, a in the language of a group of people who may not be very uh, sophisticated in terms of technology uh, as it is in um, an, quote, advanced language. This is just something that one of the, the best tools that people have to um, survive. Richard, two questions emerge here from this. Like, one, of course, is like, would like to understand, like, is language or has language been the most important aspect for survival of a human race? Like, as you were saying, like, it's been one of the most important things. So is it, is, would it be true to say that, that language made the human race survive? Uh, and probably is going to save us from extinction at some point in time, if at all. I actually think probably that's so. Now, there have been a lot of studies of communication patterns among animals, and it's really impressive. People often underestimate how much, a la uh, how much language a dog can understand. And, you know, there was the famous studies at Stanford 40 years ago of Coco the gorilla, who actually was able to communicate not only single words, but kind of very basic sentences with um, the uh, owner, the, the trainer. And uh, so I think that this is a fundamental part of being human. And the reason I think it's critical to our survival is because we're not the fastest animal in the jungle. We're not the strongest animal in the jungle. The way we tend to respond to threat is by creating a new tool. And that is really also the other kind of side of the topic for today, innovation. So language is a wonderful field for innovation, creating new tools, uh, and it's also, yeah, you can't really cooperate. It's almost like opposable thumbs. You really can't cooperate with other people unless you have that kind of communication ability.
that, that's very interesting. So, of course, it made people gel together or uh, communicate with each other. But you, you also said in the beginning, in terms of like how various societies have uh, come together and that has had, actually had an influence on language. Uh, do you think wars have actually had some kind of an impact on language? Because war could have been one of the singest, biggest, single biggest reasons for flourishing of languages or enhancement of a language or change of meaning, uh, if I guess. So Amit, you're already getting me into this kind of mood about talking about the relationship between language and economics, because in some ways, wars are a market failure. Mm -hmm. uh, language is a tool in which success is when you're able to get your point across and achieve your real world objectives with what you're saying. And so diplomacy is maybe the ultimate expression of that in kind of the world of political conflict. Uh, but I do think that um, wars as a market failure reflect some of the bad things that can happen to language, right? How prejudicial thought creeps into language. We tend to dehumanize the enemy and in a variety of ways. And there have been real formal studies of this. Um, so yeah, wars have an impact. Language can lead to a perception of the other side as being people you can't deal with, right? As being people who are not worth your trouble. Um, and so, yeah, that can influence the way we use language. Now, in terms of the basic structure, let me put this into, into terms from a different field. You've got a technology stack. And at the very basic level of the stack, you have the grammar and the vocabulary of the language. But you have all sorts of things that help it come together and help, um, you know, things be transferred into ways of expressing this world around us or expressing intention or expressing emotion. Um, the higher layers of the stack are very susceptible to change. And once in a while they creep down the stack and become a new basic way of doing things. So that's, that's very interesting. But now coming to this uh, important point, as you said, uh, wars are about market failure. Uh, and of course, uh, the, as you say, that it is one, language has been one of the most important reasons for success of the human race. And it does actually enable innovation, but how does it actually link to economic development? How, how does it really stack up onto that? Well, um, I think that the link to economic development is not quite as clear as the link to businesses, okay? I think this is more in the realm of business than in the realm of economics. If you reconceptualize the what I was talking about, this prototypical room with a window in it that everybody may have a different view of, but the better that you can communicate all the aspects of that room that you need for your, for your transaction, right? The transaction is the meaning. So basically speaker and listener is kind of the beginning of a value chain. If the speaker is successful, value is created. The listener gets it, the listener buys it. And then um, all of the things that depend on that basic transaction in terms of conception are almost like a value chain. Uh, so that when you have a new tool being used in this basic transaction, it will have an impact on the other things in the value chain. So um, there are dozens of ways of saying something and people are coming up with new ways all the time. Um, but in something like kinship terms, where, uh, you know, the concept of uncle is not necessarily a blood relative in a lot of cultures, right? So 
this is one where if you use the term uncle, I suppose, for um, someone who's not a blood relative enough, eventually that meaning sticks. Now, it will probably be recognized as possibly a metaphoric extension of meaning by people for a long time, but eventually the basic meaning of uncle has changed. So the field of all kinship terms is kind of being altered. When you have uh, a new technology coming into the value chain in the real in in this world of economics, you often have similar kinds of things. So uh, let's look at a big one. The coming in of artificial intelligence into industry all over the world, right, is almost really like the Norman French invading England. <laughs> Suddenly we have lots of new ways, lots of new tools to use in order to achieve our transactions. And the, um, the artificial intelligence itself is kind of an element. It's the technology. It's really how you use it that will depend on what kind of value you can obtain from it. So um, yeah, the old ways without artificial intelligence may not disappear. Some of them will disappear, uh, but you've got um, suddenly a totally new value for data, a new value for um, statistical clustering algorithms that uh, was not usable before. Because these are now usable, people will use them in some way. And this is, this is probably why, uh, well, industrial, what is it? Digital transformation is the hot term these days in, in Japan, where I do a lot of work. And so, um, yeah, this is industry's use of the new technologies. Right, the the technologies themselves are just kind of elements that you can use, and then if you really transform your business, you are using them differently. So, Richard, this is again very very interesting and fascinating in terms of like how you're talking about language and artificial intelligence and things. So, artificial intelligence, if I might say, is is a new tool that has emerged today, and of course, you did allude to graphs and uh, graphics and how pictorial representation is there. Uh, which is creating that importance in how you're able to use uh, data to depict certain set of information. But there's a certain evolution that actually happened over a period of time of the language itself, per se. Like I, I think there was so much that happened before the said word that actually emerged. And how, how do you think that actually happened and how it did transform the human race uh, historically? And then coming to, of course, artificial intelligence, which can have a huge bearing on how the human race probably emerges as well. There are a few major developments that probably really changed language and in which language really changed the way things developed. One would be the development of writing. Because with writing, suddenly you can have asynchronous communication between people at a distance even. And that is almost like the development of hard currency in economies, where uh, suddenly you don't have to somehow get your goats to, to pay your taxes with goats. You can pay your taxes with a few pieces of gold. Um, and that, I think, probably has changed a lot of the way we use language. But I have to say, the point of language is that people can always find a solution if they need one. If they are absolutely um, stuck in a situation, there are very few situations that people have run into in which language does not have the tools to be able to um, communicate yourself out of trouble. So, Richard, as you say that, of course, language is a tool, but then 
there, there is this very interesting difference that you find between languages across the world, uh, wherein there are certain words which just do not have an alternate or a similar word in the other language. Uh, so don't, don't you yeah. think that itself creates a certain level of barrier at points in time? Uh, and that might well, actually create a barrier in terms of business as well? Oh, and there, for over 100 years, there has been a huge debate about the relationship between language and thought, whether your language controls your ability to think, right, in certain ways. And, you know, you, you, there are some famous things. I think Inuit languages may have something like 26 different words for snow, uh, because that's relevant up where the Inuit people live. Um, and languages will have different sets of color terms. So in some languages in New Guinea, there are only two basic color terms, essentially black, dark, and light or white. And you know, then there are languages where there's a set of four or five color terms, always black or white. And then you'll get red and green as the next. And then the next set in the hierarchy tends to be brown and orange. And finally, you get into purple. And But the thing is, if people have a need, they will develop a new tool. So the word chartreuse, right? How did, how did the word chartreuse come to be? And I haven't really studied the history of the word chartreuse, but I assume that it has something to do with the color of the liquor that was produced by the monastery in southern France. Okay, so that's very fascinating in terms of how some economic activity that was being done did create a word or did create some alternate way of communication. Uh, well, look at all the challenges we have now for creating new words. There's kind of a specialized um, profession to come up with new words for pharmaceutical drugs. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uh, kind of market-focused research to see whether this will be a memorable name to people or whether this will be hard to uh, conceive of. And it will have some sort of something that sounds good, right? Let's talk about a blood thinner called Zarelto, spelled with an X. I don't know what's going on there, but somebody had to come up with that. Some of these brand names, of course, ultimately become generic names. So here in America, we call facial tissue Kleenexes because that was the company. The word zipper came from the company name of what was originally a fastener of some sort. Um, so yeah, people can find new ways of saying things if they need to. And so that's, that's, that's very important to really go further with. In fact, when you're saying that you'll have new words and new meanings, and of course you did say that uh, you, you're actually creating some kind of a, a product which is just going to be an only present kind of a thing, right? So it becomes a generic. Uh, yeah. Any more stories of that sort, like where, where certain words have just become generics and they're just stuck around with us uh, for a long, long time? Uh, there are plenty. And of course, now that you ask me, my mind is going to go blank. But um, you get brand names, you get things that are calced from uh, different words where you put two different words together. I forget what the origin of the word Kodak was. Okay. But uh, there's an interesting story there. I think um, the printer Canon may have actually had to do with the name of Buddhist Kannon, which was the goddess of mercy. And uh, so, you know, there's, they're all over the place. <laughs> and of course, I can't think of any great examples right now. No, but then, so that means there is, of course, a process to it and things. But you, you said something very important here, and that was that you will want to create a word which sticks in the minds of people. Uh, so there, there are many things that have actually happened, like uh, over a period of time, there are brands which have got created, which are more than uh, something like Instagram or uh, something like Zoom or whatever, which, which have a very different connotation to 
uh, as a word to what they actually do. So where does that transcendental thing happen? Or how, how does that transcend into different sets of things? Well, if you're in marketing, one of the intentions of the communication is to communicate in a way so that the other person will really remember that name. You know, that becomes very important. Uh, Zoom itself is a very interesting idea, right? That was a word that originally imitated a sound and it wasn't really a noun. And so it, the sound of Zoom uh, became transposed as a different part of speech, as a noun. There are a lot of um, examples of words in which they will be taken from part of speech and made into another part of speech. In fact, the very name for this process is an example, verbing. So you take a noun and turn it into a verb. Let's say we need to scissor our expenses. Now, why would somebody say scissor our expenses instead of cut our expenses? Because you're getting somebody's attention. You're saying it in a kind of vivid way, which may indicate you don't want something little, you really want a serious approach to the problem. Um, so there's almost nothing that's unintentional. And uh, it's, yeah, this kind of taking taking verbs and turning them into nouns is, is or taking nouns and turning them into verbs is quite common. So Richard, like when we are coming to the present day world where, where language is possibly getting severely challenged as well, uh, in terms of like how, when you're saying there is a process called verbing or there's also a process which is probably there, which is shortening of words and killing the very spelling of words, etc. Uh, how do you really look at that? Like, is it going to dilute language? Is it going to uh, create problems in the future? Or how would you really think about it? There's a lot that we lose, uh, but the next generation will probably take care of themselves. The um, It's frustrating to people who get to a certain age to see what are apparently mistakes in using language. But then that becomes the normal. That fil filters down into this basic level of the technology stack and becomes grammar for the next set of people. Um, yeah, there's, there is a fascinating pattern in Japanese where you have a humble word and then you'll have a respectful word. So the humble word should only be used for the speaker and the speaker's family. And the respectful word should be used by the same action for the same action by someone who you're talking to, right? Or who is higher social status. But there's an association of humility with politeness. So the word for humble to be in a place uh, is right now in Japanese being applied sometimes to neutral third parties. And after it goes through this stage where it's spread out to neutral third parties, it's in the process of being used incorrectly, language teacher would tell you it's incorrect, for actions of the listener, right? So I'm, I'm saying you're humble when I'm using that word in regard to your actions. But uh, this is the way this kind of thing spreads. And people associate the humility with politeness and so it's a successful meaning transaction as long as what is communicated is politeness i'm trying to be polite to you by selecting a polite word so you know like richard you did say something in terms of that the future generation will take care of itself uh, of course so that there is an evolution of language that is going to happen or whatever but then in that natural process of that evolution, there would be extinction of languages and that might actually happen. Uh, so how do you really look at that? Does extinction of a language uh, create challenges in terms of understanding our history, our history or patterns today? Or how, how do you really look, that, look at it as a challenge to learning or to probably how the whole process of 
uh, what call, business can actually happen or how the future would unfold? Keep asking me these deep questions. Uh, the uh, first part of that about the next generation is really, um, you know, I look in awe at the way young people use language on texting, right? LOL, mm -hmm. LMAO, right? And, you know, and they get so that this is the standard way of saying something. And I, um, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a foreigner at this. This is not my native language. Uh, so they are moving on into a new world. And, okay, the kind of frightening things about this is a lot of it looks sort of ADHD to somebody my age uh, because it's quick, it's short. There's not this extended kind of flowery language that flowery for them. Go back and read a newspaper from 1850, and it looks remarkably slow. Uh, you know, very kind of not hard-hitting. So, yeah, to my generation, it looks like we're losing something. Now, to the next generation, they're keeping up with the pace of life that they need to keep up with. When a language dies, it usually means that the people who share those tools have ceased to be a viable social group. So um, we've seen language deaths quite a lot. And one of the real sort of motivations for studying anthropology and linguistics 100 years ago in the United States was to try to come up with descriptions of these languages uh, before the last speaker died, a lot of Native American languages. And the um, kind of death of a language either means the social group no longer exists because they've all died out, the group was conquered by another group which has refused to allow them to continue to use the language that they had. <coughs> or possibly they found something that was uh, more useful. One of the other ways in which new languages appear is um, when people start to trade with each other. They will come up with a kind of pigeon uh, language that basically is very limited in vocabulary, and um, but it, it's good for trading. But if that trading activity becomes so much a central part of society, these people's children may start to speak that pidgin language as their own native language. When that happens in linguistics, they technically say this has become a Creole language. And Creole languages are in the process of expanding their tools so that they will have vocabulary to uh, address whatever situation comes up in the lives of the people who use the language. Um, it may have started out just with trading activities, but pretty soon it will have all sorts of things about kinship terms and about uh, other ranges of vocabulary. And they will pick and choose that from different languages. So for instance, in the Caribbean area, you have Creoles where a lot of the, the grammar is sort of West African language and a lot from some West African language or languages. And a lot of the vocabulary came from Portuguese or from French or some of it from English and Spanish. So you have entire new languages appearing that way. Um, we, borrow lang we borrow individual language items a lot. Uh, that's like um, licensing a technology from somebody else. So, you know, like you're saying that, of course, we borrow a lot from others, but there is this also new emergence of languages, like so the emergence of slang and emergence of new words, like what you call yeah. as LOL or LMAO or all that stuff. Uh, of course, like even for me, it's, I find it Greek because I have to actually uh, talk to people to understand what it is. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, where, where do you see uh, this, this having an impact on our 
learning processes? Do you think it would actually have an impact on our learning or is it going to make things easier because or everything would actually end up being in a short form over a period of time because there is this danger with social media? This is a very interesting problem. I think the problem is that people don't have to be 100% precise in their communication. They need to be precise enough and accurate enough to get their point across and to achieve the objection, the objective of the interaction, right? The market exchange has to happen. But basically people are pretty fuzzy in the way that they say things on a daily basis cause people understand and we're always negotiating minor market failures by uh, would you, you know, asking people to say something again or asking or saying something in return where it's clear you didn't understand what I said. Um, so we're always continuing to build together this world in which we're, that we're communicating about. Um, and the, um, the kind of problems with that is uh, it's really easy to be sloppy. And it's very easy to just take the lower level of getting by with your, your um, expression. It can be just as expressive but it may not be precise and accurate. And there's a lot of danger in that. I don't see it as a danger for the human race, but I definitely see it as a way in which, say, populist leaders take over. You're dealing with a set of assumptions that people have, that the common people are not being taken care of by some privileged elite. And a leader will come in and take over that. and. Um, people don't really realize what a serious kind of distortion it is to say something like stop the steal. You know, this was the, the phrase around the American election, where first of all, you're calling it a steal, and then you're telling people that they can stop it, that they have to stop it. Um, that's may be very effective, but it's kind of a misuse of language for the purposes of the speaker. And that is a very common uh, problem in language. You know, uh, a lot of the sort of embedded racism or embedded gender prejudice in language is um, something that people have used and it can be perpetrated by uh, accidentally using it when you don't mean anything. When I was growing up, <laughs> now we're talking ancient history, uh, you know, I was told very strictly by my English teacher that everyone has his pencil. And that if you, if you put down something like everyone should have their pencil, uh, you would have, you know, you would miss that question on the test. Now, uh, that is regarded as gender prejudiced. And so everyone uses, uh, everyone has their pencil now. This is how a mistake becomes associated with a new social meaning. And basically, society always wins if the word is going to be associated with a meaning that is unpleasant to some people in the society, it has become marked. Whether or not it was a misuse of grammar or whatever, you just have to deal with it. So Richard, you're alluding to a very important point, and that is about possibly making language gender neutral. Uh, would that be possible at all? Because uh, what is what was seen as a very simple task of saying he, she, or whatever, like just, just to identify, it is now being touted as something which is hugely uh, what do you call uh, derogatory or whatever. So our language is going to become gender neutral. 
And especially if you really look at language like French, which is probably... Right. How, how do you deal with this when there is a, a masculine and a feminine kind of gender to each noun? Yeah. In, uh, okay, several things. First of all, um, I just read a letter of recommendation for a, an applicant to Stanford, and I was fascinated that the writer of the letter was talking with this use of pronouns and did not have his or her always used its. And after the first instance of its, there was a footnote. And down at the bottom of the page, it says the writer is using completely gender neutral uh, terminology throughout this letter. And so to me, that was kind of anomalous. It, it did not feel natural. I get the point. I understood the letter. That was fine. So it was successful that way. If that catches on, that will be the direction that the language takes in the future. Now, um, who knows whether it will catch on? And this is where there's another parallel to industry. So you have a new technology that comes in. It will be used. You know, the new technology is like the research result. It isn't used until a company puts it into a business model, like a sentence, and uses it to communicate something, uses it for a market transaction. That's the real use. And so you have to look at the elements of the business model. You have to look at these other things as well as the basic function of the technology. So on the language side, you have things like this if, if it catches on, if enough people in society see that that's a good solution to the uh, gender specific problem, uh, then that's what will happen. Um, the um, situation with masculine and feminine in um, languages like French or German or, or most of the Romance languages or whatever all over the world is it's unfortunate that the words were called masculine and feminine in the first place because they really represent essentially uh, classifiers and classifiers are not by nature either masculine or feminine they just pick two because it seemed to fit, right? Um, African languages may have 30 or 40 different classifiers that depend on the shape of an object, that depend on the, the type of material that the object is made out of. And so you get these things and, and there's no association with gender. But um, yeah, I do wonder what will happen to, um, to French. Okay. <laughs> but then, uh, again, going back to one of your very important points, which, which did uh, strike me quite uh, heavily, and that was that how words can actually uh, relate to something like prejudices over a period of time. Uh, so something like, say, black as a word, across the board, across languages, yeah. it seems to have had a negative connotation, which is probably based on our biases and whatever, and which is also propagated things like uh, uh, racism. Uh, so how did that happen? Like, why did it so happen that all languages were evolving in different parts of the world seem to have had uh, black as a negative word or whatever? And why did that happen? In fact, in India as well, if you really look at Hindi, yeah. at points in time, it could be seen as a negative word. Uh, so well, why does that happen? So there are some things that go back to physical perception. And so black is perceived as the absence of light and white is perceived as the presence of light. And in culture after culture, you have black associated with not so good things and white associated with things that are better. Um, some of these prejudices in people are very strange. So for example, left is always not as good as right. The word sinister in English comes from the Latin for left, left-hand side. So you have this, you have a few other things that seem to be just the way we conceive the world. If you are 
going up to something. The direction of up tends to be associated with greater effort and therefore with something that's important or even sacred. Whereas the opposite is kind of interesting. I noticed yesterday in the news they were talking about the crowd descending on the Capitol. Now, I've been to the Capitol, and it, you have to go up a hill to go to the Capitol building. <laughs> so uh, why were they descending on the Capitol? And I thought about that, and it has to do with treating them as unfairly, incorrectly, putting themselves in a position of relative authority. So they came down to the Capitol and, and threatened the Congress. Um, you do have these things in language after language, and it probably goes back to some sort of physical perception or something related to uh, physical perception. Again, like moving ahead on this, uh, do you think uh, that when you really talk about language and things, that there is going to be there is an effect of language and nationalism. You did talk about populist leaders at one point in time. Uh, and then of course, there is this whole growing nationalism around language also, and we have seen it in the past as well. Uh, so language and nationalism, and then of course, language uh, getting, uh, what do you call us in this present generation, it is gonna get what, what we might not like, and it, it'll actually deteriorate if you, for lack of better word here, uh, from our perspective, for, from the perspective of oldies. But how does this really come together? Nationalism, the deterioration of language or the change of language, authoritarian leaders, how, how does it all come together? Well, language is one of the classic defining features of a culture. Now, with a language like English where it's spoken all over the world, maybe you don't feel that quite as much. But look at the uh, attempts in France to avoid importing words from English, and instead inventing new words in French to deal with um, new kinds of, of things. Um, the interesting thing is the word that's invented in France is probably going to be based on the same sort of metaphoric extension that the English was. So I see this a lot in baseball vocabulary in the, in, uh, places like Japan and Korea where baseball is is very popular. Do you say uh, strike? That's the normal way of saying it in Japanese, uh, but when a person strikes out, they use the quasi-Japanese word sanshin, which means three misses. So <laughs> um, they don't say sanstoraiku. Uh, and so you have this kind of thing where this is with regard to nationalism has to do with the perception of some group of people that their language is really something special for the nation or for that group because it's not necessarily a nation. It could be a very regional dialect. Uh, and they will use that and act like they're avoiding all other kinds of language, keeping it pure, um, as a way of unifying the country. So one of the bad things that you see when one people conquer another people is refusing to allow them to keep the native language. Uh, this has led to some really interesting situations in the world. Um, in the South Tyrol, part of um, what is now Italy, bordering Austria, after before World War I, people were speaking German. And then after World War I, people had to speak, um, speak Italian. So you get this thing where at home, people are quietly speaking German, and in public, they have to speak Italian. This kind of thing happens all over the place. Um, and it's really not so much the language's problem as it is how people will use the language to enforce their kind of culture onto another people. And so just a fascinating question here, you know, like, and that's, 
about a country like India, you know, wherein we have such huge levels of diversity of language. Uh, and uh, it, it, how, how do you explain a country like India then? Like at one end, you're talking about like that nationalism could be there. They, they could be probably killing of a language if there is some kind of a annexation or whatever. But in the Indian context, uh, how do you really see it? Like India is so multicultural, so diverse, and probably the dialect changes every 100, 200 kilometers as well. Which is one of the remarkable things that India works well as a country. Of course, there's a lot of variation from state to state and from region to region, but you have some unifying things. India did not really come together like this until there were other institutions that could support it, unity, like the railroads. And I think that um, if you are having more contact with other people, right, from other groups, then you will find ways to get over that and have a productive bilingual or trilingual society. That's one of the disadvantages of the U.S. is we're kind of a big island country. People in some parts of the United States realize that Spanish would be very useful to learn, but uh, in most places you get by with English and so we seem to have less foreign language ability than other people. Uh, whereas in places like Europe, in places like India, people are speaking three or four languages quite well uh, at the same time. They have those different tool sets that they can use depending on the occasion. But uh, it is amazing that India could come together, but I'm guessing that, um, you know, you have other things that unify a society and people find ways to overcome the differences in language. So you yourself said like multiple languages. So uh, is multilingual lingualism good per se or not? Well, uh, think about it. How many tool sets do you have to learn? If you have to learn two or three different tool sets, you may not have mastered any one of those tool sets as much as someone who only had to deal with that one set. But it gives you a kind of flexibility that the person who only has mastered the one tool set does not have. There's a fight about children who grow up bilingual. Is that a good thing or not? Uh, but it's uh, one of those things where I think the flexibility may be worth the uh, any kind of not having all of the vocabulary from either one of the systems at your immediate disposal. And when you talk about language, like I would certainly want your view on instruments of writing as well, because language and instruments of writing has actually have had some huge connection at some point in time. Uh, they, they've grown together. How do you really look at this as well? Writing is really one of the most important things that changed the way people live. And we've had it for a long time. Uh, I do think that we're seeing some possibilities for moving into a new age now that we can communicate this way richly with video and audio as well as through writing. Uh, it's instantaneous communication now, but um, writing was something that really gave ancient societies a definite advantage over their neighbors. And it even affects how we see history, right? The, the reason that um, the Vikings coming to North America was not so well known is because they didn't write about it much. Um, whereas Columbus wrote reports back to uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese, right? Who did he sail for? Isabella, so in, in Spain. Um, but this was, um, yeah, writing is, in some ways, it allows you to put a level of meaning into language that's not possible just with verbal communication.
the way things look. So, for example, in languages that use kind of um, ideograms as well as phonetic symbols, you have choices of how you will spell someone's name that uh, may be uh, quite different depending on what kind of an image you want to evoke with that person's name. Um, so that was also not all. It's interesting that sometimes writing was used as a way to keep the small literate class separate from all the other people in society. Uh, a lot of things in the history of Japanese were apparently so difficult to figure out unless you happen to be a member of the court at that time that they would have been basically unintelligible to people of that time. So many layers of meaning and, um, you know, weird references that um, really writing itself became almost a way to keep the common people out of the elite. Uh, we take a different view, and we've had a different view largely across societies ever since the, the Age of Enlightenment, uh, where now we really want um, writing to be a way of spreading education as well as enabling, um, enabling much larger political units. So how did India come together? Uh, I think that the, um, the political unit of you know, writing may have helped, although there are several different writing systems that are reflected in, in the different languages in India. But a broader question, uh, and are you saying in your previous answer, that writing was also, or writing in language has possibly been used as a tool for discrimination or probably- Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is one of the nefarious things that people do to each other. Um, <laughs> it's kind of um, the economic equivalent of holding up something I know you cannot afford to buy and kind of acting like I'm offering it for sale. So uh, very definitely people are not always trying to achieve positive objectives with this kind of basic market transaction called communication. Okay, and you know, like uh, last question, and that is from the audience. Uh, and uh, he said, the question is, if the human species were to die out and aliens were to visit earth, which language will they decipher first? Wow. Um, depends on how they're deciphering it. Let's assume that they're technologically advanced because they made it to here anyway. They may actually use, um, they would probably aim at one of the major languages to, and, and throw a lot of computing power behind it, whatever kind of computers they're using. And uh, you can get an awful lot just by statistical analysis. So I have to say they'd probably aim at uh, English first and possibly Chinese immediately after that, mainly because English has had a longer history of being relevant in a broader set of countries, uh, whereas Chinese was relevant in China and more people speak it. But um, I think in terms, you know, they will look for the language that's probably had the biggest clout. And you have to say that that's probably English, not because of any characteristic of the language, but because of the way history worked. And last but not the least, what, what kind of research do you think is really going to excite the world around in the area of language? I think that um, there are a lot of the use of artificial intelligence in order to process language in a very different way uh, is definitely up and coming. Uh, the speed with which you can do basically a kind of purely artificial intelligence-based 
analysis of a language text uh, is is just remarkably proceeding fast. And so we will have, you know, handheld translators, we already do, that are pretty darn fast, but it will get to the point where you won't even notice them. They're getting to the point where they're good enough to work. As they continue to get better, you will uh, notice them even less. So um, I think that probably automatic translation, I think that um, the use of advanced analytics in order to understand more about people's sentiment, more about how people uh, are viewing particular products, that's already pretty advanced, but it's still moving up. Um, welcome to the world of ones and zeros and very clever ways of detecting relationships and patterns. Great, Richard. This has been such a captivating interaction. I, I think I just thoroughly enjoyed it. A great learning experience and a journey in terms of understanding language. And uh, this has just been a stimulating discussion. Thanks a lot, Richard, for joining us today for this Thinkers Dialogue. Uh, I hope I, I, I will be able to invite you sometime in the future and you'll agree to be part of this uh, for a future conversation. Uh, thanks a lot. Amit, Amit, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Richard. Be well and be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.